Great. Well, being the huge traditionalist that I am, uh, I thought we'd observe the Christian calendar, and it's Palm Sunday, so uh, we're going to have a look at the, the account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem in that final week of his life. And, and all four Gospels have this account. All, all four of them speak of this story. Um, and if we had time, I'd go through all of them, but we don't. So I'm just going to pick up particularly uh, from, from Luke's account and from John's account. We'll refer to probably all of them, but I want us particularly to have a look at these two. So, so our first reading is from, from Luke chapter 19 and verses 28 to 40. I think it's on the screen. So Luke 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went out, found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought, to, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And just quickly having a look at that same account, but but written by John. In John chapter 12 and verses 12 through to 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See! This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The last three years, 
Jesus in his, in his public ministry, he's, he's gone about predominantly uh, Galilee and Judea announcing the good news of the coming kingdom of God. And wherever he's gone, along with this announcement, there's been signs of the kingdom. Signs have followed the announcement that he's made. So we, we see he turned water into wine. He, he, he healed people of terrible diseases. He, he cast demons out of people. He even multiplied food. He, he calmed storms. He had power over storms. And incredibly, he even raised the dead to life. Wherever he went, he announced the kingdom, and that announcement was backed up with signs of the kingdom. But now for Jesus, it was time to head to Jerusalem to celebrate the great Passover feast. But as we kind of see in the passages that we've just read, and we know from our own knowledge of what then happens in the next week, we know that this Passover was going to be unlike any other Passover that had ever happened, any other Passover that had ever been celebrated. Jesus knew what he was heading to. Jesus knew what lay ahead. It wasn't just a celebration of the Passover in remembrance of what had happened before, but it was going to be a new Passover. God was going to do something new. The disciples didn't understand, but Jesus knew what he was heading to. And that's kind of what I want us to look at this morning. There's, there's so much that we could pick up on. There's so much that we could look at from those passages. But, but what I particularly want us to think about is these two layers of understanding, of, of the understanding of the crowds and the disciples and, and what they saw that was happening, what their hopes and their expectations of, of what Jesus was doing and their, their desires and how they interpreted what was happening. But then this second layer of understanding of, of how Jesus saw things, of, of what he saw was happening, of his full knowledge. And I want us to quickly look at those and then to think about how we can apply that to ourselves and what that means to us. We see uh, Jesus is clearly being hailed and, and depicted as king, isn't he, as he comes riding in to Jerusalem. And, and actually, it's not the first time that crowds have tried to make him king. We see back in chapter 6 of, of John's gospel, you remember the feeding of the 5,000, and he takes just a small amount of food, and he miraculously feeds over 5,000 people just with a little boy's lunchbox. And out of that, the crowd saw what he had done, and quite rightly perceived, wow, this man there's something special about him. And in fact, it said they considered Jesus to be the prophet who is to come into the world. And they thought, he's the king. But the way they went about it was that they tried to make him king by physical force. They tried to, to, try to push him into that kingship. And Jesus, Jesus, in effect, was saying, that's, that's not the nature of my kingship. My kingship is not one of physical force. And so he withdrew, if you remember in that story, he withdrew himself to a lonely place to escape the crowds so they couldn't physically make him king. But in this passage, as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, the crowds and the disciples seem to be wanting to make him king. And this time, Jesus doesn't seem to be resisting it, does he? He, he seems to be almost saying, yes, that's right, I am king. Jesus happily takes his place upon a donkey, doesn't he, as he rides in. Now, most common people in that day would not be riding on an animal. 
Like most people would be on foot. If you were riding on any kind of animal, it was a sign of wealth, of dignity, of authority. And to add to the, to the recognition of Jesus as king, he, it says he was riding a colt which had never been ridden before. Well, I don't know if you know, but for kings in, in those days, the king's horse was not to be ridden by anybody else, only by the king. And so Jesus is coming and riding this colt, this donkey, which has never been ridden before, a symbol of the fact that, yeah, he's a king coming into Jerusalem. The disciples place their cloaks upon the donkey. Kind of in effect, they're almost creating a throne, aren't they, for Jesus to sit upon. And as well as creating this throne, what else do they do with their cloaks? They throw their cloaks upon the ground, lay them on the floor before him. And a sign of respecting royalty or a distinguished guest. Like it really, uh, the significance of that really hit me just yesterday. I was reading uh, in Second Kings as kind of my as my daily reading uh, the story of Elisha, the prophet, having a word from God and and sending one of his servants to this guy called Yehu. Don't know if you know the story. And he sends his servant to Yehu and he says, "I want you to anoint him with oil. And as you anoint him with oil, you're to proclaim that he is going to become king." And that's what he does. The servant goes, he, he anoints him and says, you will become king. Yehu comes out of this, this private meeting and his attendants say to him, what, was, what did he say? And with a bit of sort of cajoling, he lets on to what's being said. Actually, God said, I'm going to be king. But the immediate response of the attendants, of those around him, were to throw their cloaks on the floor to cover the bare steps so that Yehu didn't have to place a foot upon the ground. Just the sign of the significance of what it is to throw your cloaks on the ground. That acknowledging Jesus' royalty. The, the, the disciples and the crowds, they were waving palm branches, weren't they? We see in, in John's gospel, in John's account, they were waving palm branches. In, in Matthew and Luke, they spread the palm branches on the ground, on the road as well. And there's real significance in this. 200 years previously... The uh, Jerusalem and Judea, it was, it was under the rule of the Seleucid Empire. They'd captured uh, Jerusalem. They'd taken control. And particularly, they'd taken control of the temple in Jerusalem. And so 200 years previously, this guy called Judas Maccabeus rose up, a Jewish guy, and he leads this revolt. He gets a whole bunch of Jews together, and they ride into Jerusalem, and they, by physical force, capture Jerusalem back. And they take hold of the temple. They remove all the idols that had been placed in the temple and being worshipped there. They removed them, stripped them clean, and rededicated the temple to the service of God. And ever since that time, the palm branch had become this symbol of national liberty, of na- national liberation. And so as the crowds are waving these branches and putting them on the ground before Jesus, it's kind of uh, saying in a, in a way that they... They saw Jesus as another Judas Maccabeus. They saw him as a guy who was coming to lead a revolt. They saw him as the man who was going to come by force to remove the Romans from Jerusalem, to kick them out and to restore the promised land back to the Jews. In effect, the crowds and the disciples were treating Jesus as a national hero. They were, they, these hopes were rising up in them. Could Jesus be the one? Could he be the one who will bring liberation to our people? Could he be the one that the prophets spoke of in the old times? The one who will come and bring salvation? 
And their cries, the things that they shouted, reflected their hopes, didn't they? They cried, Hosanna. And the cries that we see them shouting, they they come from Psalm 118 uh, and and verses 25 and 26. And this this word, Hosanna, is the first word in verse 25. And it's it's, uh, in the Greek, Hosanna, it's the transliteration of the Hebrew word that we find there. And, And it literally means, save us, Hosanna, save us. So Jesus is coming in, riding on the donkey, and the crowds are cheering, save us. And they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew's account has them saying, blessed is the son of David. And you remember back the prophets speaking of the Messiah who is to come. He would be a descendant of David, the great king, the only great king who ruled with a godly manner over a united kingdom. And out of him, his descendant would come one who is even greater, who would restore back to the Jews the promised land. And they're crying these things. They call him the king of Israel. The problem is, is their perception of Jesus' role, of what he was coming to do. Quite rightly, their hopes, as we see in Luke's gospel, what does it say? It says in in Luke uh, 19.37, it says, When he came near the place, so when Jesus comes near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. Why? For all the miracles they had seen. Jesus had done the most incredible miracles. And the only people who they knew had done such miracles like that were the prophets in the old times. People like Elisha, who had raised the dead, who had fed people, multitudes, from small amounts. They were likening Jesus to the prophets. And quite rightly. But they'd kind of missed the reality and the the vastness of Jesus' role as king and as Messiah and saviour. The very act of Jesus riding in on a donkey kind of shows us a more correct understanding, really, of what was going on. Jesus isn't coming in on a a battle horse, charging in to take Jerusalem by force. He isn't coming, rousing an army with swords to fight with a physical battle. The battle wasn't going to be won by attacking flesh and blood. And we see Paul encouraging us the same, don't we, in Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. Again, to help us to kind of get a bit of a corrective on on how we understand Jesus' role. John, in his account, he refers to uh, to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He says, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Actually, in Matthew's account, he gives the fuller version of of Zechariah 9, 9, which says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, the disciples and the crowds, they picked up correctly. Jesus was coming as king and he was coming righteous and he was coming to bring salvation. But they hadn't quite grasped the fact that he was coming gentle, riding on a donkey, gentle, humble, 
As far as Jesus was concerned, he might be king and he was actually allowing the crowds to say, yes, you are king. He might be king, but he saw no need to display his rightful place as king by using physical force, by using the understanding of human ways. He comes as a king, but he comes as the humble king. It's not even just a donkey he's riding on. It's, it's a colt, a foal of a donkey, the young. For Jesus, triumph is coming. As he rides into Jerusalem, he knows what lays ahead. He knows triumph is coming, but it's going to come through humility. And this is a theme that runs central through the gospel. The triumph comes with humility. And it did for Jesus. We know. We know the story. You see in Philippians 2.8, speaking of, of Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death. The way he won, the way the triumph came, was through humility, through obedience to his father, not through understanding of human ways, not through physical force. The problem was for the crowds and the disciples that their understanding and their perception of Jesus as the messianic saviour king, as the Messiah, as the saviour, as king, they were right in thinking that, but their understanding and perception of that role was far too limited. And therefore it's no great surprise, is it, that when Jesus, only a few days later, is crucified and killed upon that cross and is hanging there, dying, the crowds were nowhere to be seen. They were dispersed, and their hopes were seemingly dashed. All that they'd hoped for on this day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem as they're crying out, those hopes were seemingly dashed. In their limited understanding, in their limited perception of Jesus' role, the cross signified failure. But actually, in the, in the vaster, vastly wide, cosmic and eternal reality of Jesus' role as saviour, as messiah, as king, we know that the cross was the only and the perfect means of fulfilment. What, what does this speak to us? How do we, what do we do with this? What do, what do we do with these different levels of understanding? Because we still have them today, don't we? We still have them, that, that we have a certain level of understanding and yet God is way above. What do we do with that difference? Well, one of the things that I noticed as I was reading this passage and kind of came back to me is that Jesus attracts crowds. He always did do, didn't he? You read through the Gospels. Jesus always attracted crowds. And he does today. When Jesus is at work today, when God is at work today, he attracts crowds. There's something kind of intriguing about him, isn't there? There's something uh, fascinating, something attractive about him that draws us to him. And he draws in crowds. The thing is, though, is that the presence of crowds doesn't automatically imply the presence of faithful followers. It's entirely possible to witness powerful signs of God at work and to even then go on and proclaim him with our lips and to give momentary acts of worship and yet not to 
give him a consistently faithful following. I I know people, I've got friends, they've seen God at work in the most miraculous of ways. They've seen God heal people. And yet they haven't given their lives consistently to follow him. I wonder, I put myself in this as well as I ask these questions, but I wonder, are we like some of those people in that crowd on that day as Jesus rode in, the crowd who were cheering and proclaiming Jesus and yet just a few days later were nowhere to be seen? Are we like some of that crowd going along for the trip in the hope that Jesus fulfills some of our hopes our desires, my hopes, my desires. And are we ready to sing praise, to shout out proclamation of who he is, to get excited in our worship meetings and say, yes, you're God. But only actually as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want him to be doing. Or... Or are we ready, not only like the crowds, to lay down their cloaks, i.e. to do the showy thing, to do the flamboyant thing, to do the thing that we think is seen as the right thing. Are we ready not only to do that, but are we ready also to follow Jesus, even into places of trouble? Are we willing to follow him into places of controversy? Are we willing to follow him into places of death as a church it's absolutely awesome isn't it we've seen God at work in some amazing ways and, and we praise him for it and just again on Friday at David's Thanksgiving service again we were just reminded of the story of what God has done in this church over the last few decades to think that just a handful a small handful of people who were seeking God, has now become getting on for 500 people in this area over the last couple of decades who are now seeking God and who are living for him. That is God at work. It's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. And we see people's lives are being transformed. And I don't know about you, but when I see someone finding life in Jesus, that's what I live for, to see someone's life turned around, to see someone finding hope, Well, you don't sound particularly excited, to be honest, but anyway. (laughs) I get excited. That's what it's all about, and we praise God for it. And we've even seen a smattering of, of, of miracles and healings, haven't we? We've seen people's, Daphne, her, her hips growing back, people's backs being sorted. We've seen God at work. Not as much as I'd like, but we've seen him at work. And entirely appropriately, we praise God for him. I know we're quiet this morning, but I know we praise him. We do. We remind ourselves of the story regularly. Phil loves to tell us the story. And we praise him for what he's doing. Quite right. We see in Luke, that's exactly what the disciples were doing. They praised God for all the miracles that they had seen. (laughs) And actually, the, the Pharisees then come to Jesus and say, Shut your disciples up. And Jesus says, you know what? Even if they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. You can't stop creation and my beings from praising me. 
quite right that we praise God. It's quite right that we acknowledge him and thank him and get excited about what he's done. But I wonder, could it be just possible that occasionally we get a little bit too comfortable with where we're at? that we get a little bit too comfortable with just hearing that story of what God's done. Because it's easy to sit in a chair and hear what God has done and get excited. But it's not so easy to keep pressing on for more. And I wonder, have we become so comfortable at times that we begin to lose sight of the vastly wider hopes of what God is longing to do if only we'll see the bigger picture and begin to follow him faithfully no matter where he leads us. We speak regularly of revival in this church. Fantastic. I'm longing to see revival and I, I have to honour Phil, a man who just keeps pressing in and saying I long to see it and nothing will, will dissipate that hunger which he has. And as a church, we speak about revival regularly. Fantastic. Keep going with it. But have we limited what revival looks like? Do we get so used to hearing chat about it that we actually limit the reality of what that looks like? Do we have a true vision? Not in our limited understanding, but do we have a true vision of what revival really looks like? Or do we limit God and ourselves by not setting our vision beyond our immediately perceived need? We're always going to be the limiting factor to what God will do in and through us. We're the limiting factor. And if we can figure out how to smash those limitations that we ourselves create then what God longs to do is limitless. Do you know that? That what God longs to do is limitless. You see, Ephesians 3.20, it speaks of the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Immeasurably more. God is longing to do it. Again, you don't seem particularly excited by that. God is longing to do incredible things. And you know, I'm utterly convinced of this. I'm utterly convinced that God is longing to bring heaven on earth in this place. I'm utterly convinced. That song we were singing, this is the time, this is the place, let your kingdom reign. Utterly convinced that's what God wants in this place. Utterly convinced that God wants to restore marriages. Utterly convinced that he wants to heal the sick. Utterly convinced that he wants to draw the lost into relationship with him. Utterly convinced that he wants to take broken people and make them whole and give them hope and give them meaning, utterly convinced that God wants to pour out his spirit in a way that we've never heard of, that we've never imagined, that we could never conceive, utterly convinced of it. We're getting there. (laughs) Because we're called to pray for it, aren't we? What, What? When Jesus' disciples went to Jesus and they said to him, Master, teach us to pray, what was it that Jesus then taught them to pray? The first bit, our Father 
who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So much we could say about that, but that's not relevant at the moment. But then he goes on to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. As it is in heaven. Jesus is commanding us to pray for heaven to become a reality where we are. What's our vision of heaven? Because sometimes, I know for myself, my vision of heaven is limited. And when I ask for God to be at work and to bring his kingdom, I seem to have a very limited understanding of what that will look like because I don't seem to ask for very much. It's got to be a possibility. Jesus asks and you will receive. He teaches us to pray for it. Sometimes we get so het up, don't we, about, oh, is it in God's will if I pray for this? Is it not in his will? Will he do it? Will he not? He teaches us to pray this. It's his will. We can pray for heaven to be a manifest reality right where we are every day, and we can experience it everywhere that we go. If you know Jesus as your saviour, if you know him as the one who has gone to the cross, who has made the way for you to have life, who has made the way for you to enter into relationship with a loving heavenly father, if you know him as saviour, then the same spirit that rose him from death to life is alive in you. That same spirit, that same power. Paul speaks of it, God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, all authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. In other words, there's no other power that compares and that power is alive and at work and living in you if you know Jesus as your saviour. The question is not about God. The question is not about God's power. He's all powerful. The question is not about God's ability. He can do all things. Nothing is impossible for God. And the question is not even about his desire. His desire is that a broken and lost and hurting world come back and find everything that they need in him. The question and the issue is us. The question is, do we perceive the reality of that power in us? And do we perceive the scope of the redemption that God is longing to bring in this community, in your town, in your village, in this region, in this nation, in the nations, through us? Big vision, big. Do we get the scope of what God is longing to do in and through us? Where we often fall short, I know for myself, is failing to recognise and embrace the fact that the route that Jesus leads us down in order to see his work accomplished is no doubt going to be a route that humbles us, just like Jesus rode in in humility and humbled himself even unto death. That the route that he leads us down to see his work accomplished will no doubt be a route that is sacrificial, a route that costs us. It will cost us our time. It will cost us our energy. It will cost us our emotions. It will cost us our reputation at times. It will cost us our status. It will cost us perhaps that promotion that we're seeking. It will cost us that nice house that we're looking to live in. 
It will cost us that nice holiday that we've always been longing for. It will cost us giving up our time to seek him, giving up our time to spend time in his presence. And the path that he leads us down won't always make sense to us. And sometimes it will only begin to make sense much further down the line. Just like Jesus' disciples didn't understand as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, they didn't understand that when he went to that cross that actually there was something much bigger than their initial hopes and desires for who Jesus was and what he was going to accomplish. And it was only after he was raised to life that they began to see what Jesus had been doing and what he'd been saying. Are we willing to follow him even when we don't understand where he's leading us? To say, I trust you. Proverbs 3, always a challenge for me. Verses 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones that encouragement and challenge to trust in God and not in our own way of thinking that we can trust him when he leads us because he's the all wise king you know we don't have to understand everything in order to trust and faithfully step out I don't have a clue how a car engine works I'm absolutely rubbish like anything mechanical wouldn't have a clue but I don't get up each morning and kind of think, oh, I don't really understand how my car works. Should I really get in it? Hmm. I don't battle with that thought every day. I know the car gets me from A to B. I don't understand how it does it. It just does it. Do we have to understand everything of God in order to know that he's faithful and that he can lead us in the right way? And we know in Jesus we can trust him unlike any other because he already has shown us that he's faithful. He already has gone that route of humility, that route of sacrifice. He already has shown us what it is to live a life of obedience to the Father. Even when it leads him to death, he laid down his life for us. And the biggest pit of evidence that we have that it is totally rational and logical to trust in him is that he was raised to life again that he's alive and he's not dead we can trust him see the major issue tends to come when we try to operate in the realm of God's kingdom in the things of his kingdom whilst maintaining an understanding of our immediate earthly realm. When we try to, to pull heaven down to earth, when we try to, to operate in the ways that God operates, whilst maintaining our own understanding of the ways which we've learned as we've grown up from the things that we see around us, from, from the earthly physical realm rather than the spiritual realm. And it doesn't work when we do that. It's only ever going to frustrate us when we try to operate in his kingdom whilst keeping ourselves rooted in in this kingdom. It's only ever going to frustrate us. It's just like the crowds who tried to make Jesus king by force. It frustrated them. It's like Peter, when Jesus was arrested, what did he do? He got his sword out and chopped 
the servant's ear off. And Jesus said, no, Peter, that's not the way. Peter got frustrated. He saw something of who Jesus was in God's kingdom. He saw a reality of God's kingdom, but he tried to comprehend it and work it through in the understanding of the human physical realm. And it frustrated him because the two don't work together. And Peter is a great example of someone actually who can have the best intentions to see the kingdom of God coming. Who can have the best intentions to see Jesus made known. But actually, if we're operating from our own human understanding, from this earthly realm, from the physical realm, rather than God's perfect wisdom, then not only do we find it frustrating, actually, even with the best intentions, we can, we can actually prohibit the coming of God's kingdom. And Peter, again, a great example. You know when uh, Peter first said, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're, you are the Christ. And as soon as he says that, Jesus then begins to explain to them what's coming for him. He begins to say to them, Okay, you've recognized that about me. Now let me tell you something else about me. The way that that's going to work, the way that I'm going to bring salvation is that I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be mocked and flogged. I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to be raised to life again. And the disciples didn't understand it, and they didn't like what they heard. And what was Peter's response? He takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, doesn't he? He says, never, Lord, never, This shall never happen to you. I will not let you be killed. He had the best intentions that Jesus would be God, would be king. He had the best intentions to see his kingdom coming. But he was operating from his own human perspective. And these words that Jesus then says to him, I hope no one ever says this to me, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Scary words. But this next sentence that he says to him is really key. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That for Peter, he was seeing something of the reality of God's kingdom, but trying to work it out in the realm of the physical and not in the spiritual realm. And actually it prohibits what God is doing. It prohibits his kingdom becoming a reality here. It's kind of like me going to India, going to a really remote village and trying to get out my English pounds and buy something. It's just not going to work, is it? So I, I might have money. Yes, it's money, but it means absolutely nothing in a different kingdom. It means nothing. In a new kingdom, we have to take on new ways of thinking and new ways of doing things. And as long as we keep restricting ourselves to thinking purely within the realms of the immediately visible, of the physical realm, we'll keep on getting frustrated. We've got to gain eyes of faith. We've got to gain eyes to see in that spiritual realm, to see things in the way that he sees things. Hebrews 11 speaks of faith, doesn't it? Being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We need to have these eyes of faith in order to see his kingdom coming in greater measure. How do we do it? We seek him. 
He says so clearly throughout the scriptures, if you seek me with all your heart, if you put everything, if you're desperate for me, you will find me. I will reveal myself to you. I will reward you. How do we gain eyes of faith? We seek him. We fill ourselves with him. What do we fill ourselves with? What do we fill ourselves with? Do we fill ourselves with what we see on TV? Do we fill ourselves with the lies of the media? Do we fill ourselves with all the back chat that goes on at work and just think that's just the way that things are? Or do we fill ourselves with the things of God? Do we allow him to become everything to us? Do we fill ourselves with his word? Do we fill ourselves by spending time in his presence? To get eyes of faith, we have to awaken ourselves to his presence. It's about getting to the point that our awareness of him becomes an even greater reality than the physical things that we see around us and the challenges, human challenges that come before us. Are we so desperate for the presence of God? Are we so desperate to know him to the point that our awareness of him goes beyond our awareness of what else we see physically before us? When we first moved to this school, there was a motto, wasn't there? Make, make room for God. We're making room for God. And we did that physically by moving into a bigger place. But I want to challenge us again as a church. Are we consistently making room for God? Not just on the one-off for big occasions, but every day in our lives. That as we come together corporately as a church, yes, are we making room. But as we are scattered as the church across the area, which is where we long to see the kingdom coming, are we making room for him? Are we setting aside a time for him every day? You know, 10 minutes a day in our Bibles and praying... And then two hours of watching TV, that doesn't match up, does it? What we fill ourselves with is what is going to become the greater reality to us. If we fill ourselves with him, he can become that greater reality. He is the reality, it's just our perception of it. And it's being transformed by the renewing of our minds to that place where he becomes the greater reality. You know, following Jesus can be really unnerving, But the more we follow him, I don't know if you found, but it's my own experience, the more we follow him, even when we struggle to comprehend his leading, the more we actually gain a deeper understanding of him and of his ways in the whole process. You know, I've already said, I I believe, and and I know it's true, God has infinite blessing, which he is just longing to pour out on this church, which he's just longing to pour out in this area, in this region, in this nation. He's longing to do it. He's desperate to give us good things. He's desperate to call a broken nation back into relationship with him. He's longing for it. And you know, particularly as a church, I think this is something which God is saying to us as a church. I think he's saying we're at a threshold. We're at a point where we are becoming the limit to the extent of the kingdom growing in this place. That he is desperate to bring revival. He is desperate to pour out his spirit. He is desperate to draw lost people back into relationship with him. But we are the ones who decide whether we'll limit that or not. Are we going to humble ourselves? Are we going to pray whatever 
Sorry, are we going to pay whatever the price Jesus asks of us and follow him even when we don't understand? Is that your heart? Is that the heart of this church, that we see God's kingdom coming? Is that what we're longing for? I know it's my heart. I know it's Ed and Phil's heart. I know it's the leadership's heart. Is it the heart of the church, of all of us together, that we see his kingdom coming? And are we willing to pay that price? Are we willing to follow even when we don't understand? And I just want to encourage you, if that's us this morning, what, let, I don't want to stir anything. Let's just get on our knees and let's begin to call out for God to come. Let's begin to cry out for, for him to give us eyes of faith, to see things in the way that he sees them. Because as long as we keep doing things on our own understanding, we're just going to see a, a small little trickle of God's kingdom coming. But we need to put ourselves in that place of seeking him with abandonment, with everything that we are, that he becomes everything to us. Are we up for that? Let's, let's get on our knees. If you're able, if you're not physically able, then that's okay. But let's get on our knees and let's begin to cry out for God. Maybe the band could come and, and lead us shortly. But let's just cry out for God's kingdom to come. Let's not worry about our Britishness, about what anyone else thinks. Look, this is going to cost us something. And it, if it costs us embarrassment, then, then let's break through that barrier. Let's break through that threshold. Because if we cannot stand as brothers and sisters in a church together, how the heck are we going to do it when we're out amongst people who don't know him let's just begin to cry out father god we're hungry for you we're desperate for you